We're going to take a, a break from Acts today uh, to talk, uh, to go to a few different places in the Scripture. We don't do this very often, um, but to go to a few different places in the Scriptures to hear what God has to say to us. Um, Johann Sebastian Bach, the, uh, the great composer, uh, would often at the end of his uh, works, uh, the things that he had composed, he would write the initials SDG, uh, which is for the Latin phrase, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Uh, but I just learned that at the beginning of all of his works, he would also write the initials JJ, Jesu Yuva, the Latin phrase, Jesus help. Uh, and so uh, this week as I've tried to wrap my mind around uh, what to say, I think I've probably prepared you know, three different sermons and each one of the points of this sermon could, uh, could be a standalone sermon in and of itself. And so um, just praying that Jesus would help, uh, Jesus would help my words to be clear, um, that Jesus would help my heart to be humble, and that all of this would be for His glory. So let's, uh, let's pray as we go before God's Word. Our great God, we need Your voice. Uh, we need Your voice because there are so many voices. There are so many voices uh, who are speaking into our hearts. Father, it is hard for us to discern um, what is good and what is bad. Uh, It is hard for us to walk in wisdom uh, in this moment. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would speak this morning. Father, I want to speak your words, your truth. I want to handle it um, accurately. I want to handle it rightly. And so, God, I pray that you would, by your grace, do that. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, shoot arrows from your word to our hearts. Uh, God, that you would also heal our hearts with words uh, of comfort and grace. Lord, whatever uh, does not come from you but comes from me, I pray that it would be stricken from our memories, uh, that it would be blown away like chaff in the wind, but that your words would stand eternal and true. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Race, justice, and the gospel. I wanted to preach uh, on these things, not because there's a lack of things being said. There are plenty of things being said. Um, And uh, it seems almost a little bit arrogant to uh, aim to add more to that. But I think many of the words, many of the things being spoken are producing more heat than light. And so what I want to do this morning is hopefully to see how the Bible speaks to these things. Uh, And I want to do that because ideas have consequences. Uh, Worldview matters. Um, and and you may we may be prone to think that ideas uh, something in the realm of the academic things like political theory and sociology and, and all of those things really are very far removed from the street level, but that could not be further from the truth. That the way that we view the world, what we believe to be good and true and right, 
actually has an impact on how we live. And so we must, uh, we must experience change at the level of ideas. Um, of course, we uh, just yesterday, right, celebrate... Um, those who fought and died in World War II. Uh, And that war would not have happened if it were not for ideas. Adolf Hitler uh, murdered over uh, around 6 million Jews as well as other ethnic groups including the mentally ill and disabled. Why did he do that? It was his worldview, what he believed to be good and right, and what was the necessary consequence. The consequence of Adolf Hitler's ideas was a world war. And so ideas have consequences. And so underneath all this injustice and and stirring the violence is really a clash of worldviews, competing ideas of what the world should be like, of what is true and good, of what is right and wrong. All of us have a worldview and we need to examine that. So this morning what I want to do is I want to look under the hood. And I, and I want us to take the mirror of God's Word, the light of God's Word, and I want, to, I want it to, to apply it to our worldview. What do we believe God says about these things? And, and we should admit, acknowledge on the front end, that if this Word is God's Word, if it comes from Him, then it is going to challenge us. Right, the, if your if your God only ever speaks words of comfort to you, then it is most likely a false god. It is a god of your own making. It is a god who works for you and serves your ends. Our God speaks both challenge and comfort. Um, Our God does not work for us. He does not serve us. Rather, we serve Him. But God does love us, and He wants us to walk with Him. And so, as Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That's what I hope for us this morning. It's what I hope for us um, forever. Uh, So I want to look at uh, three things, of course. Um, First, I want us to see how God defines us. How does God define humanity and what does that mean for us? Then I want us to see how God defines justice. That it is God who defines justice and not us. and, and, And what does that mean for us? And then I want us to see finally how God works through reconciliation. Uh, First, how does God define us? And for this, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Uh, We're going to be in several different passages this morning. Again, this is not our custom, but on a a topical uh, sermon like this, we're going to be in several different passages. And so you may just want to keep your Bible open in front of you. Uh, The first place we're going to start, our starting point is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Says this. Just give you a little bit of context. This is day six of creation. Everything else in the created order has been made. 
uh, light, darkness, sun, moon, stars, land, water, and all of the things that live in all of those spheres has been created. And now God comes to the best part, uh, the final part of creation, His high point. When He says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so our starting point this morning, when we talk about how God defines us, we're going to use the phrase repeatedly, The image of God. God has created humanity in His image. And and what that meant uh, when Moses wrote those words is that all of creation, not just, excuse me, all of humanity, not just the kings who would eventually come to be, but all of humanity is designed to represent God to the rest of creation. That many of God's attributes, now humanity is not God, and yet many of God's attributes are meant to be reflected in humanity to the rest of creation. As man was commanded to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply, that meant that God's image was to cover the whole creation. That God's holiness and justice and goodness through mankind would fill the earth. And that doesn't just refer to these first two, it refers to all of their children, all of humanity, bear God's image. Now, why is that important for us today? There, there, there are thousands. I mean, there's so much about the way that we see the world in ourselves. Um, can, so, so much can come from this one phrase, this one passage. But for us today, the reason this matters is because one of the things we need to establish is that each and every person has a dignity and worth that comes from God. It does not come from themselves. It comes from the God who made them. Each and every person. So, man, woman, young, old, black, white, fat, skinny, rich, poor, weak, strong, clean, addict, liberal, conservative, every single human being has a worth that is not defined by any of those categories. We use those categories to assign worth. We use those categories to assign dignity. Every single one of us has a set of lenses. And we look at other people, whether the same skin tone as us or not, and we assign worth and value based on those categories. But God has assigned worth and dignity to every human being that no other human being can remove. It's why after the flood, God would tell Noah that whatever or whomever killed, took the life of a human, that animal or that person's life was forfeit. God instituted 
capital punishment because the image of God in man is sacred. And to, and to violate that image is, to, uh, is an assault on God himself. And so, uh, every person has worth and dignity that comes from God. My value comes from being made in God's image, not the amount of melanin in my skin, not my bank account, not my cultural heritage. Right? Value is given to you by God. It comes from the outside, not the inside. And what that means is that it is not a sin to be yellow. It is not a sin to be red. It is not a sin to be black. It is not a sin to be white. Or any mixture of those things. Sin does not... Sin is not attached to an ethnic heritage. Right? Value... uh, Our value and our worth comes from God. And it also means this. We are one race... We speak of racism and we speak of different races, but that, but that is not how the Bible speaks of Paul when he addresses the philosophers in the city of Athens. He says that every, every group under heaven has descended from one pair, right? That we are one human race uh, and we are separated by different ethnicities. Again, the the New Testament uses the words of nations and tribes and languages. Uh, But humanity is one in Adam. Humanity is one in Adam. So what distinguishes us is not our race, but our culture and ethnicity. fairly fluid constructs of, of language and nation and physical differences, right? So we could even say uh, a white man in Ohio and a white man in Germany are very different. We would not put them under the same label. They have a different language. They have a different heritage. They have a different ethnicity, A black woman in Alabama and a black woman in Nigeria may look similar and yet culturally they are different. But they are not of a different race. We are one race with many ethnicities. And so what we call racism is really ethnic superiority. What we call racism is really a sin of ethnic pride. We could also call it tribalism. Uh, because I think that my tribe is superior to your tribe. And therefore, I need to subject or put your tribe down. What we call racism is really boasting in our ethnicity so that we despise or ignore or mistreat fellow image bearers. And that is sin. And God hates it. And I don't avoid this sin by simply not telling racist jokes. Uh, I'm guilty of this sin whenever I see myself as fundamentally superior to you because of my physical characteristics or my heritage or my ethnicity. So really, in that regard, this sin of ethnic superiority is an equal opportunity Sin. In fact, it has since the fall been our dark family tradition 
But we'll get into that in a minute. So that's our starting point. We are one human race and we each bear God's image. And that means our worth comes from Him as well as the worth of our neighbor. And that then leads into this topic of justice. God defines justice. Uh, And this is actually a very large topic in the Scriptures. This flower grows all over the garden of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. And it is built, this idea of justice is built on the premise that God defines what is right and wrong. God defines what is good and evil. Not me, not our culture, uh, not other cultures. Um, Good and evil are not fluid. They are solid and concrete, established by God. In fact, God Himself is the source of what is right and good. Deuteronomy 32, he puts it this way, The rock, who is the Lord, the rock, His work is perfect. All His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Psalm 11.7, The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. And so I am not the source or definition of what is right and good. I don't define justice or righteousness for myself. God defines it for us and we must listen to Him. And humanity, as I said, was intended to reflect God's character of which justice is a part to the rest of the world. But we know that has not happened. That man has fallen from his original condition. In fact, we see our first parents reject God's authority in Genesis 3 so they could be like God. The offer of the serpent in Genesis 3 was, listen, you don't have to listen to God's authority. You can be your own authority. Reject God's authority, reject God's voice and follow your own. And so they did and we do. Instead of being ruled by Him, we seek to be Him and rule ourselves. And what was the consequence of that? What happens in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4? Cain murders Abel. I find it very striking that as soon as we reject God's authority and seek to govern ourselves, hating and killing another image bearer becomes an option. But that is the first thing that happens. It actually begins with Cain and Abel's parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? As soon as, as, soon as they reject God and His authority and God confronts them, they start blaming each other, right? So that strife and enmity is already there and then within one generation it flowers into murder. And if you keep reading through Genesis, murder gives way to more murder, gives way to oppression, gives way to violence, gives way to greed. And so that's what I mean when I say that ethnic violence is really our family tradition. That this has been with us for a very long time. And it takes different faces over the centuries. And what we call this is injustice. Because God's good moral order is ignored and overturned. When we ignore God's good moral order 
We call that injustice. And so God commands, when He liberates Israel, He commands His people to be different. He actually liberates, He he, he saves Israel from oppression in Egypt, and He gives them a new law. He makes them a new nation. And he says things like this in Deuteronomy 10, 17-21. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. Now I want you to notice that when God commands these things to His people, first His justice is rooted in His character. He says, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is not partial. I am just. So justice is rooted in God's character, but it's also rooted in their salvation. He says, you are this, and I have saved you from that. Now be like me. Be just. Deuteronomy 16, 19-20 You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for those who cannot speak, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now what's sad is that Israel did not do that. They did not follow God's law. The oppressed became the oppressors. And hundreds of years later when the prophets would come, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos... They would point to Israel's injustice as proof that they had rejected God. And so Jeremiah 22 says, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Here's something else. This is, this is just a sampling of verses on this topic of justice uh, that come from the Scriptures. Um, but I want you to notice a couple of more things. First, that justice is active. That it is not, uh, it is not a passive idea. Rather, it is God's people are called to do justice. So justice is something that you can do. Not only that, but notice that in the verses I read that justice is restorative. That when we often think of justice, we think more kind of in a Greek Western mindset which says justice is uh, the criminal getting what they deserve. And that is justice. Uh, That is present in the Hebrew Scriptures as well. But in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's the Hebrew Old Testament that informs the New, the idea of justice was also restorative. This idea that the fall creates 
inequality. And that as God's law is applied, we have a tendency to apply it unequally. In fact, other law codes in the ancient Near East favored the powerful, right? That if you were the king and your, uh, if your chariot ran over a slave in the street, well, you weren't guilty of the same crime as if that had happened reverse. If a, if a slave had killed the king... Uh, then then the, the punishment would have been meted out differently. But in God's system of justice, there is not inequality, right? This set of people don't get a different treatment than this set of people. Rather, they are leveled. That to murder is to murder. And so... Uh, God tells His people that justice is restorative. That where we see inequality, that we ought to speak for those who can't. That we ought to feed those who are hungry. And again, these are broad concepts. So that's really big. That history is really wrong. That, 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 the history is long. The chasm is deep. Kevin, where do I even start? I think that's that one of the downsides of our of our current moment, uh, especially in the age of uh, of you know every, everybody has to voice an opinion and speak in outrage, etc. Is that the concept becomes so big that we we just feel overwhelmed and helpless? Like we we don't even know where to begin. Most of us most of us don't have the resources to right societal wrongs. Right? I'm not a policymaker. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I'm not a representative or a senator. I don't have great wealth. So, Kevin, where in the world do I even start with this? How do I how do I follow God's desire that I do justice? It's a great question. Uh, one place that comes to mind is Romans 12. This, these verses have uh, come up continually. Romans twelve nine through twenty one. Let me let me encourage you to do this. Just to take, gosh, even each sentence of this passage, and pray over, reflect on, and then act on, and ask for God's help in acting on some of these things. Romans twelve nine. Let love be genuine, real. Authentic. Let love be genuine. How often, right? I mean, that, that one sentence convicts me. How often is my love hollow and false and not genuine? Lord, help me to show genuine love. Help me to know what genuine love looks like. Abhor what is evil. I love that word, abhor. You can, you can almost feel your face contorting in disgust when you say it. And that's what the, the word is meant to convey. A, a hatred, a revulsion. That when I see evil being done, I am disgusted by it. And I withdraw from it. That when I see one image bearer kneeling on the neck of another image bearer. I am disgusted. And when I see uh, wealthy attorneys who care nothing for the cause 
of racial injustice, but only uh, wanting to sow discord and anarchy, throwing flaming bottles at police cruisers. I am disgusted. Right? Abhor what is evil. God, help us to be disgusted at what disgusts you. But not only that, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Glue yourself to what is good, right? When everything else is pulling in the opposite direction, right? When every voice that you listen to is just churning this pot of hatred and anger and strife, hold fast to what is good. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what is good and to give you the strength to only speak what is good and to do what is good. There's, there's so much in these verses. I can't look at them all. Uh, verse 15 of Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We always love it when we're in sorrow and pain and someone comes along to cry with us, don't we? Well, there are parts of our body that are weeping. And we need to figure out how to move towards that. Right now, um, I want to move away from that. Uh, I, I, I like to move away from pain. I like to move away from grief. That's not, that's not natural uh, to me. Uh, but, but Paul is saying that we can move towards and put our arm around those who are weeping. Uh, even if we don't understand, even if we don't understand their cries, we can at least uh, move towards them. Now, how is that even possible? If that is not natural to me, if the things in Romans 12, 9 through 21 are not natural to me, how do I get there? And that's where we see God getting there for us. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. Start reading in verse 11. God is the one who works true reconciliation. I want to finish this morning by looking at how Jesus accomplishes exactly what we're looking for. Paul writes this in verse 11 of Ephesians 2, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision but by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hand. So, so there you have an ethnic divide. right? You have the Jews, the circumcised and they, they would look at the Gentiles and say, oh, there go the uncircumcised. right? They, there, there go those dirty Gentiles. So you have an ethnic cultural divide. And Paul says that all of us, because I don't know of anybody in here who has uh, Jewish heritage, I could be wrong, but I think all of us are Gentiles. Paul says, you were on the outside. You were on the outside. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We stood on the outside and Jesus brought us inside. 
For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So Paul probably is using this image of the temple in Jerusalem and and there was a wall around the outer court of that temple that kept Gentiles from getting into the closer temple courts. And there was even a sign on that wall that warned a Gentile that if you step beyond this point, your life is in your own hands. Beware. Paul says that wall has come down. Right? Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in Himself by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So yes, we're all one in Adam. And then we're all divvied up into all these different ethnicities and cultures and, we, and because of our sin nature, we don't like each other, we judge each other, uh, we do different things to oppress each other. Right, and I should point out that the answer, right, that, that all of human history has been a power play. Uh, that the goal, and this is, this is the goal of some even theories of politics today, that the goal is just to, uh, it's, it's one getting power over the other. But that's not how Jesus brings reconciliation. Right? If the story of sinful human history is a power play where one ethnicity is always subjugating another, where one tribe is always subjugating another and this back and forth, Jesus creates a new humanity. He creates a a new person in Himself. And it says, Paul says He makes peace. And I want you to look at this, verse 16 and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now you remember what happened when Adam and Eve rejected God? Hostility. And they began killing each other. Right? When I lose respect for God, I lose respect for you as an image bearer. But what does Jesus do? He comes and allows Himself to be killed. To make peace with God. He restores that relationship. And then we make peace with each other. And then, then makes peace between us. Right? That Jesus comes and heals the vertical. And by healing the vertical, heals the horizontal. So the gospel undoes the injustice that we have perpetrated on each other since Genesis chapter 3. It's not something that we have to work. God has already worked it for us. We can walk in it. And what that means is that when you judge me as inferior, I can take that to Jesus. And I can love you freely. Because Jesus has worked reconciliation. Because Jesus has killed the hostility the hostility that I feel in my own heart, I can put it to death. I can repent of that. I can say, I don't, have to, I don't have to feel hostile towards you. Because Jesus has done away with that in His cross. May we be a people who live, who learn to live, who learn what it means to live that way. So that we become what Jesus said we would be. This unified body of compelling unity 
that speaks of the love of God to a world desperately in need. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we need your saving grace. We need your saving grace to renew us, uh, to heal our hearts. Help us to see, Lord Jesus, how you came and killed hostility so that I no longer have to be divided from my neighbor because I am no longer divided from God. Bring peace. And may we be ambassadors of peace to the watching world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing the doxology again. The the offering plates are in the gathering area. Uh, If God is moving your heart to uh, respond to Him in worship, let's sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye 